Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what's job one to prevent a zero trust fail? The principles of zero trust, which have been outlined in the recent release from the White House Policy Office, is met. And the Technology Modernization Fund has a huge fan at the top of GSA. This is one of the topics I'm obsessed with. I think it really has uh, a, a potential to completely transform the way we do Uh, technology in the federal government. Um, It's smart in every way. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new technology consolidation effort's underway at NASA. A request for information at SAM.gov asks for industry input on building a statement of work for the NASA Consolidated Applications and Platform Services. The agency says it'll use the Alliant 2 contract from the General Services Administration to make awards. The Office of Personnel Management will hit its zero trust marks faster because of its technology modernization fund money. OPM's Chief Information Officer Guy Cavallo tells FedScoop his office did market research on zero trust tools to prepare for getting the money. Cavallo says he'll hire consulting and support people, too, to integrate zero trust with his cloud migration and service management teams. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at FedScoop.com. Today's day three of IT Mod Week. Lots of government IT leaders and experts from industry speaking at events all over D.C. IT Mod Week runs through Friday. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. Federal zero trust strategy could become a, quote, incomplete experiment, according to the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee. The NSTAC has nine key recommendations and 15 other ideas to make sure that doesn't happen. Margie Graves is senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, chair of the Industry Advisory Council. She's former deputy chief information officer of the United States. Margie, it's great to see you. What's your takeaway from the NSTAC work and these recommendations that they're making? Welcome. Looking at the recommendations that were provided by the NSTAC committee, um, it really looks a little bit familiar to me, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Even those nine primary recommendations that they're talking about for the implementation of zero trust can be categorized into three major categories, and that's planning and governance, standards, and then shared services. And if I think about that as a lineup of best practices, It really comports with what we did uh, in DHS at CISA with the CDM program, because what did we do there? We established a a government-wide program. We provided shared services through a shared contract. And ultimately, uh, we developed some approaches, best practices, Uh, We shared information among the the various agencies that were in their implementation uh, journeys, and we continuously monitored and governed how people were doing uh, in the implementation of this program. Uh, We even held individual agency um, meetings at OMB uh, once every quarter for every agency. Uh, So you can imagine that was a lot of work when this was in the throes of being implemented. So similar to CDM, uh, this is something that lends itself uh, to that kind of an approach. 
And I'm really happy to, to see this uh, report and the way it was structured because I believe um, we do have to take a programmatic view of improving cybersecurity writ large and especially of zero trust because this is not a point solution. It's not, uh, let's buy a tool. It's more of a strategy and a long-term view of how we actually do this. I'm really grateful that my colleague Dave Nitschapir and his story about this at fedscoop.com called our attention to that, quote, incomplete experiment, because that's a pretty stark, I think, way to frame this. If we do this right, this will be a complete experiment will work. And if we don't, we get that result. What did you do with CDM at DHS to avoid that incomplete experiment concept, Margie? I know you weren't specifically setting out to do that, but you succeeded anyway. And would those same principles apply to uh, zero trust in the way that you just described that the planning and, and so on applied to, to CDM vis-a-vis -vis zero trust? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we were finding uh, when people were in the nascent days of, of trying to uh, implement um, some of the FISMA requirements. And that's another thing that the report addresses is all of these measurements and metrics, they have to be congruent across multiple reporting strategies. So FISMA, FATARA, uh, any other uh, reporting that might be required, those have to be um, aligned. So number one, that's an aside. But uh, to your question, I believe that the most important thing that we did was to provide that unified acquisition approach. People were desperately and rapidly trying to um, acquire the capabilities and uh, develop the strategies that they needed to get that first level of protection in cybersecurity. And um, you could see it was somewhat chaotic. So, Having a program office established, having a one-stop shop where people could go for advice, where they could be directed to the right um, standards and to the right uh, best practices, where they could buy off of a contract that had pre-selected and pre-vetted appropriate tools that would actually meet the mail for the FISMA requirement and would if appropriately architected, actually uh, make sure that people were on the right pathway. Um, I think that went a long way to uh, helping people. You can't put out a mandate and not provide a helping hand. So all of the, the uh, enabling factors that surround a big implementation like this, have to be in place, including the leadership buy-in, including the appropriate funding mechanisms and the acquisition strategy. Uh, we, hit a, we hit two of those, the funding and the acquisition strategy. Uh, leadership buy-in, uh, I think CDM had a role in that, didn't necessarily lead it, uh, but certainly had a role in that. What's in place now or what could be in place now should be acquisition wise to meet that pillar for the zero trust strategy, Margie? Well, one of the things that uh, as I was reading through the report and I was thinking uh, uh, to the CISA of today, uh, CISA has actually been defined and called out 
as the shared services provider for security. So in terms of uh, being able to have the, the uh, mantle to go out and, and to uh, establish these kinds of vehicles, is it's in place. They've had experience doing it. Uh, they are delivering shared services now. And I think that this would be one more addition to their portfolio that would make sense. And since it's front and center in the recommendation of this, of this report, I would think that they would rapidly pick up the ball and run with it. Uh, that is uh, my assessment of, of the fact that they are in a position now to take their authorities and leverage them to do exactly what we're talking about. You see any unintended consequences here, any unanticipated consequences, Margie, that uh, maybe agencies will run up against based on your CDM experience that are not accounted for? Or maybe the report didn't even address. Well, one of the things that was a challenge when we were implementing CDM was agencies' knowledge of their own environment. And that's true in implementing zero trust, just as it was in CDM. If you don't have the requisite understanding of your data, if you don't have the requisite understanding of your uh, role-based access strategy, if you don't have those things in place, then that's the work that the agency is required and only the agency can do because they have the deep knowledge of the mission, they own the programs that have the data, they understand who's accessing it, what the role should be. If you put all of those things together, that's really agency work. There are industry partners and tools that can help you do that. But in actuality, when we first set the, um, the amount of funding and the acquisition requirements for CDM, uh, we were basing it on a assumption, a set of assumptions about each agency's ability to bring that to the table in a, in a nice, neat package. And um, we found that the discovery was much more expensive and that um, agencies weren't as in-depth in that area as we needed them to be to even be able to engage uh, with some of the tools. So, I mean, you, you know, you can't, a, a tool does what you tell it to do. <laughs> and sometimes it helps you uh, find the nooks and crannies and, and all of the things that we're talking about. However, uh, it's only as good as, as the, um, the understanding of, of uh, the people that uh, understand the mission. What will you judge at some point, Margie, to be a success? And what will you judge to be this incomplete experiment to use the language of the NSTAC work? I think the, the order of success would be if we measure down the road and we see very clearly in those metrics that progress has been made, particularly in reducing the attack surface and, and making sure that the identities are used only in a vanishing manner, they're not persistent, um, and that the principles of zero trust, which have been outlined in the recent release from the White House Policy Office, is met. I mean, the principle of, of least privilege access is that, is that evident in your ecosystem? The um, 
you can't necessarily prove a negative, and this was always a challenge at DHS, because if you're protecting against uh, certain attacks, you can't uh, necessarily show that you've deterred them if they didn't occur. So <laughs> uh, it's you can to some extent, but it's harder to measure. So I think we measure the positives and not the negatives. And if I were to say um, what is indicative of that failed experiment that you're talking about, um, incomplete experiment, it would be that, uh, that things remain chaotic and that there's no offer, overarching um, uh, clear pathway that's been lit through the night on, on all of these things. Uh, because when, when all of these come together, when NIST comes together with the standards, when we have playbooks, when we have frameworks, maturity models, and when the governance and planning is in place through a consolidated PMO, and then we provide the tools to people, um, it should work. Uh, those are, if we see chaotic expression of this in the agencies, then that would have uh, been a failure. Margie Graves, terrific insight as always. Thanks for coming back on the program today. Thank you, Francis. It's always a pleasure to be here. You can read more about the Zero Trust recommendations and find a link to the NSTAC report in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On Thursday's show, the IT road ahead for the Energy Department. The Chief Information Officer at Energy, Ann Duncan, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The one-year anniversary of the American Rescue Plan signing will come next week. That bill put a billion dollars into the Technology Modernization Fund. The General Services Administration manages the TMF. Robin Carnahan's the administrator of GSA. At IT Mod Week this week, she tells my colleague Billy Mitchell, whatever solutions the government delivers need good policy and good mission delivery. We saw over and over again through the pandemic that bad implementation sinks good policy. And so... That's what we all know that needs to be changed. And to me, the way you do that is by being smarter about what the government buys and how we deploy technology and make sure we get folks the services they need. You know, back in the olden days, it used to be uh, if, if you couldn't get the snow plowed, right, and you were a mayor, you didn't deserve to be mayor because that was a fundamental function was getting the snow plowed. Um, today, it kind of feels to me like a fundamental function is making the websites work making it so people can get services digitally uh, and do that in ways that are secure and convenient and easy to use the same as in the rest of our lives. So that's what we're planning to keep focusing on. That's what the administration wants to focus on. How do you create simple, streamlined, secure digital services? We've got momentum and money to do that. As you said, uh, you know, the, the EO uh, is focused on that customer experience and the president's management agenda is very focused on not just not just the customer experience, but specific experiences and interactions people have with government. The real focus is on what's called high impact service providers. Those, those interactions that you have when there's some experience in your life that you know you're gonna have to interact with government and how to simplify that process. So we're excited about it. GSA is in the middle of all those conversations. 
That's great. And I, I think there's, you know, also since the last time we spoke, a very good example of making a website work uh, was this COVID-19 testing website that recently got a lot of attention because it was simple and user-friendly and a lot of people compared and contrasted it to the healthcare.gov website that we all know too much about uh, back uh, uh, almost 10 years ago now. But, you know, speaking of making websites work, is that something we can expect to see more of a la the COVID-19 test kits website and, and is, is that something that GSA is, you know, working on to help deliver with other agencies as sort of that central tech transformation services element that it has? Yeah, absolutely. So 100% to, is this the way they ought to work? Yes. And 100% to GSA helping uh, make that uh, reality for federal agencies. You know, my 88-year-old mother, after the, you know, website was stood up, I, you know, called her and said, mom, you need to sign up to get your test kits. And she called back just in minutes and said, wow, that was incredibly well designed, it took me less than a minute. And are you going to make all the government websites work that well? And so I had to laugh and say, yes, mom, that's the goal. Um, the Postal Service gets huge credit uh, for doing a wonderful job. It's a simple site. It's very user-friendly. They stood it up in a short amount of time. Let me just say that none of that happened by accident, right? You referenced healthcare.gov uh, and all of what people learned through that experience. And one of the things that was a learning experience in government was, you know, there are lots of reusable components, right? That you can scale uh, to do these kinds of things. And so that was one important thing that the Postal Service did. Uh, and the other is just being very, very focused on creating a lightweight, user-friendly experience for the public. And so, Clearly, they did a lot of that. And that's something that we at GSA are spending a lot of time on both of those things. How do we have reusable components that are easy to stand up? But one of them that we use all the time and a lot of people across government are using is cloud.gov, right? And, you know, we've done a bunch of testing on that. And you could, it can manage now 100 million users an hour. Yeah. That's an incredible scale, right? So for somebody who needs to stand up something quickly... Uh, and the other thing we're doing, of course, is, is, as the EO says and everything else, really trying to put this, the user, the public, at the center of the interactions, not tacking it on at the end to see what that user experience is, not sort of having everything be focused around the silos of government, but having it be focused around the human that is using it. So a couple examples of that recently at GSA, we, uh, we stood up a madeinamerica.gov site. Uh, that used this kind of agile approach with OMB recently. And, and at the moment, we're in the middle of having uh, lots of uh, user interactions with uh, vendors who are trying to get on GSA and government schedules to try to make that a better experience. So stand by, more to come on all that. That's exciting. That's great to hear. I, you know, in the same light, but maybe switching gears a little bit, um, one of the topics I wanted to talk about was the Technology Modernization Fund. I think we, we have to in an in a IT Mod Talks uh, conversation, but, you know, GSA is sort of leading the administration of the TMF, um, which had a major year in 2021, uh, was really big for it. Um, and I would like to, you know, hear your thoughts on how you can ensure that uh, the, the fund continues in that direction with billions rather than maybe millions in funding so that it has that greatest impact possible. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. This is one of the topics I'm obsessed with. I think it really has uh, a, a potential to completely transform the way we do uh, technology in the federal government. Um, it's smart in every way. 
So uh, I talk about it a lot. I talk about it on the Hill. I talk about it in the, the administration. Um, you know, the interesting thing is it's sort of modeled after almost like a venture capital fund, right? With the idea being that you can be more agile and strategic than the traditional appropriations process allows. That's a, you know, a normal appropriation process can take multiple years from when someone thinks they need a thing to then getting the request in, to then getting the funding, to then being able to actually deploy it. And we know that technology moves a lot faster than that. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna meet the need, uh, we're gonna have to speed things up. And so TMF is able to move more quickly. It's really important. Um, and so people don't have to make huge requests. They can make smaller requests. And the investments that we make in that are not just, I think of it as financial investments, they're strategic investments, which means with the money also comes other kinds of support uh, that the team can provide. You know, one of the things that's happening now is there were a lot of um, zero trust um, investments made. And mm -hmm. so the, the agencies that got the funding for zero trust, they're all working as uh, collaboratively on this. So there's a cohort doing this work across the government at the same time. There's a ton that we can learn from that, come up with playbooks and best practices, and then scale that up to the other parts of, of government. So it's really smart. Uh, it's also smart to have technologists at the table making the, making the investment decisions um, and helping along the way. So very excited about it. One other thing I, I don't want to just forget about is the Federal Citizen Services Fund, which also has gotten a significant uh, boost in investment in recent years. And that's where, when I was talking about the shared services, a lot of those are housed, whether that's uh, login.gov or cloud.gov or the U.S. web design standards. Those, those are housed there, and we're thinking about a lot more. That's that's great. And, and you mentioned login.gov, and I was going to go there next because login.gov received money from the TMF for its expanded development. So, um, you know, talk to me about how that supports GSA's vision of providing that as a shared service for other agencies to kind of drive this more se seamless and streamlined uh, login experience for, for both, you know, the government employee and the public. Yeah, look, the, it's really interesting. If you think about uh, some of these shared services and logins, a good example is the interaction that people have with government from a technology point of view tend to be quite similar, right? The first thing is you have to be able to log into a system. If it's digital, log into a system that's secure. Uh, you have to verify your identity. You have to have then some eligibility criteria needs to be established to see if you qualify for whatever the program is. Then there's usually a bunch of notifications that go back and forth and there'll be some money that's paid and then there'll be some back-end sort of tracking of these. But like, if you think about the pattern and the process, it's very, very similar. And yet over and over, government just keeps reinventing the wheel. And so what we're trying to do is be smart about what are the things that can be easily replicated. I, I often with non-technical people, I describe it as being like a Lego set, right? Where you have all of these different shapes and sizes and pieces and colors, but they're connected through the common connector, right? Mm -hmm. Today in technology, that's, you know, we can think of it as like an API that allows data to flow, but you can build lots of different systems with similar component pieces. And so that's what we're, that's what we're focused on at GSA and uh, login is a great example of that. That's great. And login was also recently in the news, probably for the best, because it sounds like, you know, whereas there was a 
private company that had been providing services to the IRS. Um, GSA with login uh, is deciding not to do fa facial recognition for that, or at least not here in the near term. It's deciding to do some research. So why is that important? Because GSA does provide this very central role. So it's it's kind of acting on behalf of, of the rest of government. But tell me why it's important for GSA to do that research first. Yeah, look, uh, you know, fundamentally, uh, a login service has ton, tons of value, right? If we have a, an identity verification service, um, it makes sure the people who we want to provide services to get those fast. And it also prevents fraudsters from scamming the system. Both problems we saw over and over again through the pandemic where people who legitimately qualified for a service weren't, weren't able to get it and they had long backlogs and people who should not have gotten it did because they were able to scam the system. And identity verification was sort of a core to each of those things. So it's important that we solve it. It's smart for the public, it's smart for taxpayers, but we have to solve it in a way that like maintains and upholds our basic principles, right? Mm -hmm. Which is as a government, you have to serve everyone, right? And we want it to be secure. We wanna protect people's privacy and we wanna make sure there's equitable access. And so one of the things that was pretty clear is the team was looking at um, all of those issues that have to be balanced is that facial recognition technology, while it's great to automate as much as you can, if it's not equitable in the way it treats people, then we shouldn't be using it in government. And so that's not to say that over time that won't get better and that we can't move to that. But at the moment, uh, the team was not confident that this could be deployed in a way that was fair to everyone and provided equitable access. So we decided not to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great. So I want to close out our conversation with uh, a topic we've talked about before. And I think one that's, you know, uh, elementary and foundational to the rest of what we're talking about today. And that's tech talent. Uh, you can't do this without having the skilled technologists in it at the table, as you mentioned earlier, kind of driving this change. So uh, what can we expect to see on that front throughout 2022? I know the GSA houses the U.S. digital core, but um, is there anything else in that vein that we can expect to see uh, over the coming months? Well, tech talent, another topic I'm obsessed by is how do we get talent into government uh, and into government service? I think there are a couple of things that we're focused on. The first is um, having more on-ramps, and you mentioned the digital core, that's one. That was a gap where there weren't a lot of opportunities for early career technologists to go into government. We had USDS or the PIF program or 18F or other uh, other programs that, that were sort of higher level or more mature uh, career opportunities. But So digital core is great. Uh, because it lets uh, early career folks join. The first cohort's going to start in June. It's going to be about 30 people. So we're really excited about that. The second thing we're doing is like really trying to lean into flexibility. Um, you know, everything's just been so turned upside down in people's lives the last couple of years and they're rethinking where they want to work and how they want to work. I just think we have so much more potential if we open up where people are able to work uh, for the government and we have a recruiting pool that can be across the country um, there are lots of people who want to find ways to serve, but not particularly interested in uprooting and having to move to another city. And so if we can be flexible in that, I think that we can attract talent. And then the third thing is, you know, I just want to lean into the service part of this. I think that, you know, a lot of people want to find places to make an impact that are larger than themselves. Certainly in the technology uh, area, people want to do things that matter. Uh, 
there's hardly anything you can find that's going to matter more for our communities and the future of our, our country and our families than working in the government. And so we're at this moment where there's momentum and money at the same time to bring good tech talent in and, and give them the ability to make an impact. And so uh, I'm going to be talking about this a lot. And so anybody listening, come on and sign up. We'd love to have you. The administrator of GSA, Robin Carnahan, with my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell, at IT Mod Talks this week. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day and the entire scoop news group team contributes tomorrow the chief information officer at energy and duncan until then i'm francis rose thanks for listening